Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Social Work Radio with me, your host Vince Peart. Once again we are joined by our co-host Tilly Baden. Tilly my friend, <laughs> on uh, last week's episode we uh, had been busy, busy discussing ethical dilemmas. Uh, we've not got quite as juicy a topic this week but uh, hopefully it'll be good for you. It's all about, um, it's all about social work stress. Um just going to jump straight into this one today, actually, like we did last week. Um, do you do you find much stress in social work? Absolutely, yes. Right, here we go. Um, until <laughs> next week, it's there. goodbye from me. No, no, see, all, all is serious now. So basically, listeners, um, the reason I want to discuss this is um, over the course of February, so over the course of last month, we've run, we quite often write, run quite a few stories on stress over at mysocialworknews.com, given sadly, as I'm sure we'll end up discussing at length today, it is a, a significant byproduct of the work mm-hmm. we do. There's a few articles that I wrote um, one was a part of my social work supervision uh, at the start of February. That was uh, essentially someone who contacted me saying how she'd been wiped out. Uh, and since Christmas, she's been getting tired most afternoons. By the time she gets home, she's totally wiped out and quite moody. She's, she's been fighting hard to lose her extra Christmas weight this year. She doesn't want to continue because she loves her job. She's done it for six years. So I wrote a piece um, essentially explaining, well, actually, it might be signs you've got a lot of cortisol in your body because the stress hormone cortisol can bring up a lot of stress issues, which can be linked to poor sleep, um, poor diet, uh, difficulties gaining weight or losing weight, difficulty in essential weight regulation, however you want to, to spin that one and however it's relevant to your um, body image and your body weight ideals. Um Middle of the month, I wrote an article. This was um, one of my own columns, and it was essentially recalling some advice that I'd given to a friend about the boredom that she was feeling as potentially a sign of safety. Um, a good friend of mine had been, she'd been a social worker six years. She's left one job. Well, she'd kind of always been in safeguarding a couple of different local authorities, but always done frontline child protection. She left that job and gone to a, a non case holding position. Uh, around November times, about four months ago. And she said to me, Vince, I'm really, really bored. I'm missing. I was like, are you bored or are you just safe? Mm-hmm. And uh, again, that's like the Vince show. This another article that I've written. And the last one I wrote on Valentine's Day, actually, February 14th, was how to stop feeling overwhelmed in social work. And I gave some tips for those who may um, be still living with the high cortisol of the toxic uh, workplace and who may be you know, having signs of significant stress. So I wrote those three articles and I thought, yeah, let's talk about this today because we do talk mm-hmm. about stress quite a lot, but we don't necessarily talk about how to deal with them. So today's topic is social work stress and how to reduce it. So what are your symptoms of stress and how do you cope with them when you are stressed out? Not by me. Oh, <laughs> no, no. Other social work things that stress me out. Um, I, the first symptom I notice is feeling overwhelmed. By things I suddenly I've got some tips about how to deal with that coming up later. So oh, you're in the right suspect. place. Oh. Right place. <laughs> Solve all my problems for me, please. Um, <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> yeah, so feeling like I can't get on top of my to do list, mm-hmm. um, not being particularly productive, flitting between loads of different things and not really getting anything done. They're like my early warning signs. Yeah. Um, they're normally quite short term. Um, I'm normally able to stop it quite, it normally just takes a day or so just to pause and 
recalibrate and just work out, right, what am I doing? What are my priorities? What can wait and set some time aside? Try and do a bit more like you do, a bit more being, being a bit more organized and putting it in my diary. Mm. Um, but from a sort of a longer term stress, I know I'm starting to dip when firstly I notice I lose energy. Um, I don't get so excited by things. Um, I just want to go back home and go to bed. Um, crux on junk food. That's a, a big crux for me. Um, and my pain levels go up. So mm. I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the podcast, but, um, so I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Um, gosh, how many years ago now? Quite a few years ago, maybe seven, six, seven years ago. Um, and it's very well managed, but I can tell when I'm going through a period of stress because then my pain levels increase mm. and um, I can just, it's just constant joint pain, constant tiredness, constant brain fog. Um, and then I need some time to just mm. relax, chill out, recover, and then I'm back on it again. But so yeah, that's then personally for me, that that's a big warning sign that I'm feeling stressed because normally that's what triggers it in the first place. Just come back to something you said there, Tilly, about writing it down. Are you aware of Kidlin's Law? Uh, I feel like I've heard of it, but refresh my memory. So Kidlin's Law is found on the principle that any problem, when divided and examined, the smaller, more manageable components becomes half as complex and all overwhelming. Essentially, if you write down a problem, mm -hmm. it, it vanishes by half. Oh. So, you know, you said there about earlier, if you write down your problems and manage them, think about Kidman's Law. I, uh, to, to reference myself again, I, uh, <laughs> of I, course. I, I, I wrote a social work skills article on this in December. So, listeners, if you want to check out Kidman's Law, head over to my social work news. That's where I've heard it from. I've read your article before. <laughs> head over to my social work news.com to search Kidman's Law or check out the, um, the social work skills um, catalog, library of articles on there. So, yeah, that, that is probably why that is helpful for you. Um, I feel very much the same as you on certain things. I mean, I, I haven't got fibromyalgia. My brother, my brother Ethan does. He suffered with it for over 10 years now. At first, I didn't know what it was mm. because it's so linked. It comes and goes. No obvious yeah. symptoms. Doctors couldn't identify anything. And mm -hmm. as I'm sure you know yourself, it, it has only been a relatively recent discovery in terms of professionals kind of grasp a lot. We'll not stress you out by talking about doctors again. We had that a few weeks <laughs> ago on the podcast. So <laughs> They're not my favorite profession at the yeah, moment. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I mean, look, my, my symptoms generally tend to be, when I'm stressed, denial. Mm. denying that I am stressed. That's okay. the, when people are asking me, are you stressed? And I'm saying, no, 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 no. But it's obvious I am. It's because I don't like, Yeah. don't give me any attention. I don't like that. I don't, I don't want the attention from people when I'm feeling weak and vulnerable. So it's usually a denial of it. Then it'll be difficulty sleeping. Mm -hmm. I get spasms in my eye, particularly in the left eyelid. Spasms, that's a big sign for me. It's just got little eyelid twitches. I can have stomach problems. You know, I do have a hiatus hernia, so I've got to manage my diet anyway. You know, I'm restricted. My diet mm -hmm. is, you know, I don't eat any processed food. I don't eat wheat. I don't eat dairy. I don't drink. Some of those things are lifestyle choices. Some are for my general health. Some are to manage my hiatus hernia. But I, I, I have stomach problems, but I crave junk food, which makes my stomach problems worse. It's like a vicious mm -hmm. cycle. Yeah. My stomach problems bad, and it gets stressed. And I, I used to think that my head and my stomach were two very different things. When you look at the science of it, your stomach's got the second most nerve endings yeah, in the body. A lot of people refer to it as the second brain. So they have stomach problems, they have stomach cramps, they're finding difficult to sleep. 
And um, I occasionally just get feelings of overwhelm. Very, very limited. This maybe happens one or two times a year, but I just feel that everything's getting on top of me. I've taken on too much. Mm-hmm. And I blame myself. It's, I, it's, yep. I always blame myself. I've taken on too much. I've put too much pressure on myself. I've taken on too much work. I've set myself too many goals and I'm taking on too much at once. And I think if only I had a simpler life. And that's when I pine for a, a, a nine to five job stacking shelves at my local Aldi. Yeah. That's what I yeah. pine for that, I think. Because I, I hark back to a time when my life was simple. I never snack shelves. I'm not working in a supermarket, but... I have had straightforward jobs that, like, when I worked in a bar, when I worked on my dad's coal wagon, when I was a builder, when I was a careers advisor, when I was a youth worker, even though I was client-facing, I knew when I was coming and going. And my, my, my work began and ended when I entered and left that place of work. Or mm-hmm. When I was with my father, traveling around the coal wagon. When I entered and left the coal wagon, I was delivering coal. I pine for jobs like that. Now, the vast majority of the time, I love my job and I adore mm-hmm. it, but there's times where I think... I've only had a simpler life. And that's what I, I pine for, simplicity. Now, I end up beating myself even more. I don't know if you do this, but when I get stressed, I can sometimes make my stress worse by saying to myself, Vince, bloody hell, you knew this was coming. You've been here before. Why have you done it to yourself? Because mm. I get like a false sense of hope. I get stressed and I think, right, I'm going to make these changes. And I do make these changes. I, I eat healthier. I sleep better. I become more regimented. I stop saying yes to so much work. And I calm down, and then that manages fine for six months, and it reaches a crescendo. But literally, usually that's about a day or two. Like, I've taken on too much, don't do it, don't, don't do it, don't do it. And then it goes away, and I build myself up again. So those are my, my mm-hmm. main sort of symptoms of stress. As for how I deal with them, um, I deal with them a lot better than I used to. I used yeah. to deal with them just purely by denial. My stress in the past was just, you know, I'm not stressed at all. I was weak. I, my, my way of dealing with stress was saying I was weak. I'm not a man. I'm not strong enough to handle this. Nobody cares. Get mm-hmm. Think of what I used to compare myself unfavorably to other people. Think about people that are fighting wars. I shouldn't be stressed. Look what I've got. I did. Yeah. I used to, because yeah, yeah. I didn't look at my stress relatively and comparatively. I mm-hmm. didn't see it in the context of my own life. I compared myself unfavorably to people, friends, family members, my dad, other people. I think oh, they wouldn't. I can't acknowledge my stress because other people have got far worse. And that helps a little bit. It yeah. helps, but don't make it go away. Mm-hmm. So what I've learned now is to actually tackle that stress, give myself time in my diary where I don't do anything. Just give myself time. You know, have a nice bath, put some Epsom salts in, go to bed nice and early, you know, play a computer game, read a book, see friends and family, tell people how I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. Eat a healthy meal. Sometimes I'll fast for 24 hours. Sometimes I've eaten rubbish food. I think, right, I'm not going to eat anything for 24 hours. Give my body a reset. Go for a nice walk. Do some meditation. All those things that I used to be told that were ways of dealing with stress on. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go around the pub instead. They actually do work. So I listen to the science. I follow the science. <laughs> like an old COVID saying that, isn't it? Follow the science. I used to be scared about asking for help. When you get stressed, Tilly, do you deal with it yourself or do you seek support from other people? Oh, I deal with it myself. <laughs> of course like I that. do. I used to be like that. You know, I used I, to be like that. It wasn't good for me. I'm, you know I pride myself on being self-sufficient. Um yeah, I find it really hard to reach out. I find the more stressed I am, the more closed off I get. Um, and, and actually, in some ways, that can reset my stress because I am an introverted person, as we discovered a few weeks ago on the yes. podcast when we did personality types. Actually. Well, you say you are, but are you? I'm not sure, I'm not sure you are, Tilly. No, I am. I, I am. Would an introvert come on the podcast and talk like this? But... it doesn't matter. It's about how you recharge. Would, and how you, would, you put... an, would an introvert 
want to go along to universities and stand in front of hundreds of students and teach them. Introverts doesn't mean that you're a hermit. No, 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 no. I know what, I, I know what introverts mean. It's about I, how you recharge and how well, you it's not introvert, ground introvert. and yeah, but in, in where you context, feel most comfortable. I'm most comfortable, comfortable on my own. But to, to me, you have extroverted traits. Significantly. I do. Because when yeah. I think about yeah, introverts, yeah. when I think about, I maybe, I maybe have this wrong. When I think about introverted people, they are people who maybe would feel very uncomfortable coming on a podcast every week and discussing yeah. the thousands of people. I think about people who would be uncomfortable getting up and presenting themselves in that position. Yeah. But I am uncomfortable with people I don't know. But you speak to thousands of people. Yeah, but that's easy. And you know you know a lot of of people that are working those like comedians, musicians, people that get stand up on stage are often the quietest, shyest people out there. They just are able to put on a persona, stand up, do what they're doing. And, and don't, if you put me on a stage and ask me to talk about something that I have no knowledge of, absolutely everybody, terrified. Everybody, everybody yeah. would be though, everybody would be. I, if you said, oh, stand up and tell jokes or something, oh my God, I'd be terrified. I can talk about social work and mental capacity and law because like, that excites me mm. and I'm knowledgeable about it. So it's in my comfort zone. So extroverted on the stage, introverted at Yeah, home. yeah. And you see the the more extroverted side of me because we know each other so well. So introverted with strangers. I am, yeah. If I walk into a a crowded room or a party and I don't know people, I'm at the edge of that room. I do not want to talk to other people. I will sit there just trying to make myself as small as possible. I'm not reminding you how you were acting at the Social Worker of the Year Awards then. Let's quickly move on. Let's let's swiftly move on before I dismantle. Tilly's introverted idea was something. Don't match up with the Tilly I, I know. I was drunk. Don't match up with the Tilly I know. Right. But when, you are stre- when you're stressed, though, you hide away. Yeah. Not a bad way, but you yeah, yeah. go into yeah, one show. Yeah. I used to, but now I've learned that that wasn't really helping me that much. No. Maybe times of me, maybe times that I do, but like, I, I sometimes think I'm, I'm at my worst when I'm by myself. Yeah. You know, like, I, I, I like to be around people, whether it's, my friends, whether it's my family, whether it's my girlfriend, whether it's my children, I, I'm at my best when I'm around people. If I'm left, I'm, like, I could, I'm getting used to being by myself, but I don't like it. And and so usually if I'm withdrawing into myself, it's, it's, I, it's in a bad place. I'm in a bad mm-hmm. place. If I'm not speaking to people, it's things aren't going that well. Because um, usually I would, I would always actively seek people's company if I had the option. But sometimes you've got to be by yourself and that's the way it is. But like, I don't want, I live alone at the moment, but I don't, I, that wouldn't necessarily be by choice, if you mm-hmm. know what I mean. That wouldn't be my priority. It'd never be my priority. So I've learned over time, actually, yeah, because I used to kind of, I used to want people's company, but when I was feeling weak and when I was stressed and when I was vulnerable, I would hide from it. And that was the opposite route. That was the exact opposite mm-hmm. of what I should be doing because people running around, around being around people recharges me. It's what I usually seek. So I've learned, actually, what I learned was a massive, massive change from me. I learned this from a friend, Dr. Price. What I learned was that if you, it, I learned it myself but through talking to her, she helped. I I used to think that showing my vulnerability to people was a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. What I've realized is actually a sign of strength. Because if you're strong enough to say, I need a bit of help, but if you're strong enough to say, I'm not doing so well. Yeah. The weakness is in hiding. The weakness is in hiding your weakness. Mm. Because if you've got to hide who you are, that means you're weak. 
if you can be strong, you can be open. So my coping strategies, some things by myself, but now I'll also involve um, getting support from others. Um, let's talk about our work then. I've been a social worker 11 years now. You've been a social worker nine years? Something like that. Something like that. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. I'm taking, <laughs> I'm taking my days off. I'm taking my... Yeah, no, it's, it is nine years. Yeah. nine years, I've been yeah. 11 years. So in my 11 years of a social worker, there have been many times when I've been stressed. Um, when are you most stressed by your job? If I was to say to you, in those nine years... What have been the most stressful times, potentially recurring times, times that come up more than others, times that our listeners may be familiar with? What stresses you out more than anything? And are these regular things and how do you handle them when they come along? So my first year in child protection um, was the most stressful time of my life. Uh, <laughs> Hardly I've 11, surprising. I've 11 years of Hardly that. surprising. Um, I just was stressed the entire time mm-hmm. and it took me... Um, a good sort of three or four months after I left that job to be able to sleep through the night and not have that panic. Um, I used to, every time I'd go into the shops in my local town, I'd be thinking, oh my God, I'm going to bump into someone that I've just removed their children or it was constant. It was it was probably some form of PTSD that never yeah, got diagnosed. It it <laughs> yeah, been. yeah. It would have been fifty percent um, of social workers suffer vicarious trauma by yeah, PTSD. Yeah, Very and common. the the article that you wrote recently really resonated me about getting on board because I, I moved into adult services and I remember that first job I felt really bored, mm. um, and it wasn't. <laughs> it was safety. It was yeah, my caseload. If it's always high, and it, I had complex cases but it was nothing compared to how it was in child protection um so that was obviously a really stressful time um I think the more experienced you get and the more comfortable you get as a social worker and and you can rely on your knowledge base and your skills and your background that no matter what you face you're going to know how to work through it Mm -hmm. um that reduces a huge amount of stress. Could you um, go back at the children's now and, and not feel the stress then? No, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to. You Even couldn't you pay me to. all the money in the world. I would rather go and stack shelves in the supermarket and go back and be a child protection social worker. So I you'd hated rather it. do that? You, you hate my job. Uh, yeah, I would. You I, hate I, my I would job. absolutely hate it. I, I could not do it. I take my hat off to all the child protection social workers out I there. I appreciate that. <laughs> I have to me. I, I, yeah, I, I couldn't personally do it again. No. Um, it's and it, it didn't excite me in the way that my job now excites me. I love learning about mm. Mental Capacity Act and advocating for human rights and, and personalization and. Um, empowerment and all these things that come with my job now being a safeguarding statutory child protection social worker just doesn't really fit with the areas that interest me don't get me wrong I don't want children to be harmed or anything like that but it's not something that excites me Mm -hmm. personally um, there are better people out there to do the job than I, I could. I, I, so. I, like, I like the fact that you felt the need to clarify that you don't want children to be <laughs> We live a, in a cancel culture. I is, just want to make it very that clear. That is a question I was asking. <laughs> I'd be pretty surprised if any of you listeners or viewers were thinking, oh, oh, well, because she doesn't want to do that job, she wants children to be hurt. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying <laughs> of something that we didn't need clarifying. Um, in terms of when I'm more stressed, it's different to you because you said that you gave an example of 
what would have stressed you out was was meeting a client whose children you'd been involved in removing from their care. Mm-hmm. That never used to that never used to stress me out. It still no. doesn't to these days. That doesn't worry me. It's not because it isn't a tragic thing. It is a tragic thing. If that happens, that happens, and I have to just accept that that is the byproduct of my work. It's the reason why I would never do my job where I lived. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I worked in in Gateshead. Um, which is near Newcastle upon Tyne. For those who aren't as familiar with the geography, they may have heard of Newcastle, but not Gateshead. I worked there for a year, um, but when my wife at the time became pregnant with our first child, I left my job. Mm-hmm. Because I realised it was unfair on her, it was unfair on my children, it was also unfair on the other families. Imagine if I'd been a social worker for a family where the, the mum or dad had shared horrific times with me, but they'd gone ahead and improved their life and wanted to leave that behind. And yet our children ended up at the same school. Uh, just very, very difficult for mm. them indeed. So no, I would, I, I would never do my. Like I know some people who've done their job where they live their entire year. A good friend of mine, Louise, she's done her job in the town that she grew up in and lived within her entire life, mm. and she lives in that town. It's a relatively small town. Town. She doesn't see that being problematic, but I just couldn't. It's a personal choice. Um, when I felt most stress has been with paperwork. It genuinely, mm-hmm. it's, it's very look. If I have to deal with a stressful situation with a client, if I have to remove a, a children from a parent's care on an emergency basis, if I have to share difficult news with a, a, a client, you know, God forbid, I, m- many years ago now, I was the social worker of a child who ended up in a very, very difficult situation. That was stressful. And that's just one in particular that comes to mind. But I've been in lots of situations like that, but one's just come to mind then. That's stressful and that's difficult, but that's the job. The mm-hmm. job involves dealing with those things. That's the work. The stress that has got me is the artificial stress that we as social workers put on ourselves within the system. That you're given 15 different priorities at the same day. We need your chronologies up to date. We need your paperwork up to date. We need those case recording. We need those four visits doing because, you know, somebody else didn't do it. You've got a duty call to cover for somebody else. You've got to do a contact supervision for a family because the contact supervisor's dropped out and it's court ordered. Or can you take a student out on a visit because they need some experience? By the way, can you step in and can you chair this meeting on me? And you've still got your normal work to do with mm-hmm. both that. Oh, wow, that's the stress yeah. for me. It's all those competing demands because it's, well, okay, tell me which to do. And yeah. then you know that whatever you prioritize, you're letting other people down. The stress for me that comes in social work isn't the nature of the job because we know what we, we know we're going to deal with different yeah. situations. That's yeah. the job. That's what we came in to do. The stress for me is knowing you want to get there but being here. And normally mm-hmm. you can't get there. That's stress. If there's things that I can do within my power, I'm not stressed by it. Yeah, I feel a bit of pressure, but that's good. That's positive. That's yeah. a motivation to make a change and to do something good. The stress that I have felt most, and luckily I haven't been significantly stressed in my career for many years now, because as you were saying earlier, you just get used to it. Mm-hmm. The stress that I have felt worse in my social work career has been when I've had too much and I've known something's got to give. Yep. And it's not going to be me. And that's mm-hmm. the thing here. It's not. It used to be me when I first started out before I had children. I would work twelve-hour days. I'd be seven or seven every day because I felt that's what you had to do to prove you were a good social worker. Routine sixty-hour weeks was the norm, and I was paid for forty of those hours. When I had children, I couldn't do that anymore because I had a responsibility bigger than me. I couldn't mm-hmm. not be there to pick the kids up from no, school. I couldn't no, no. not be there for bedtime. I couldn't not be there in the morning to get them up. I just had to be. That's when the stress bit because that's when it was like ah. 
I've got a dilemma here. Mm-hmm. Like we were talking about on last week's show about the ethical dynamics. I've got a choice here. That's when I've been more stressed. And it's a sad stress now because it's an unnecessary stress. Yeah, it is. Because if all you were given a reasonable caseload, you wouldn't be in that position. And I think the vast majority of social workers, and we were talking about this on the other piece, the other uh, social work um, podcast a couple of weeks back, two weeks ago we were talking about this on social work radio, in relation to those burnout rates, what can we do to improve retention? Most mm. people who leave the profession are because they simply, they can't do the job that they wanted to do. So that's when I felt most stress. Yeah. Um, in terms of what I can do about it, I've left jobs before, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Just leave. Oh, give up. No, don't give up. No, don't, no, no I, I'm joking. Tilly's I'm being silly there. You, you are. You're bad. You're, you're, don't, don't give up the profession, but fine. You did it, Tilly. You did it. Yeah. You're the perfect example of what you can do, which is, Find a different position. So you were very, very stressed in children's work. You found a different position in adults and you thrived. And that's what people should do. Find something that works. It might work the other way around. People might find adults stressful, but don't. Find the job that's right for you. Social work is so multifaceted and so varied, you'll definitely find it. Um, Now, should we accept that social work is just stressful? Because what I've said there kind of says, well, do you know what? Social work is stressful. Some jobs will always be stressful. There's not much you can do about it. Yes, you can maybe change for different positions in terms of the paperwork, but in terms of the actual day-to-day work of dealing with clients in difficult positions, that's what social work is. Mm-hmm. Should we accept that social work will always be stressful and that's just the life that we lead in our profession? I think there should always be some stress that comes with it in terms of we're making such huge decisions about people's lives and actually if it wasn't if it didn't feel some sort of tug on you Mm -hmm. then actually that's quite a dangerous place to be we're making life and death decisions our choices and our the way that we practice Mm -hmm. is going to significantly impact on multiple people's lives and if you don't take that responsibility seriously and give it enough weight, then that's a dangerous place to practice. So you need that stress to motivate you in a certain aspect. Yeah, to, yeah. not. It's hard because it's it's not necessarily it's not you don't want stress, but you need that that gravity, that weight. You need to care exactly. Um, what you don't need is the unnecessary stuff that comes with it. Um, And actually, we know that some organizations are better than others. Some teams are better than others. Managers are better than others. Mm -hmm. And if you can find the right position to be in where you are the least stressed, Mm -hmm. do that. Um, It shouldn't be inevitable that it has any impact on your your personal health and your life Mm -hmm. and and everything. It needs to be manageable. Um, I mean, a bit of stress can be good. It can cause you to make positive changes in your life it can yes that's the push you stress into, is telling us to do something yeah exactly it can push you down a healthier lifestyle if it doesn't then that's bad stress and that needs to change hmm. um so yeah there's there's a balance so what you said earlier in terms of management and organization you said that just a minute mm-hmm. or so ago where does that line come between our employers having the responsibility to manage our stress and it being on us to manage our stress. And the reason I ask this is in particular, obviously, you're a manager now. I've been a manager in the past. I can give two social workers the exact same caseload. Mm-hmm. Those social workers could even have the exact same responsibility out of work. But one will be able to handle the stress that comes with that caseload in a very different way to the other person. Yeah. So as an employer, what can I do? 
maybe very little in that situation. But equally, you could say maybe I could because I could actually give one social worker more challenging cases because I think they can handle it better. And then that's a bit of an ethical dilemma mm. like we were talking about last yeah, week. Yeah, it so. is. But essentially, so where does the line draw? Where, where's the line drawn between actually saying, well, this is this is on you. Your social work is going to be stressful. You've got to deal with it as an individual. And, or, well, actually, our employers need to do more. Where's that line drawn? Well, there's no straightforward answer. Of course try, there's not. Try, try, and give me one. <laughs> try and give me an answer. I think all social workers have a personal responsibility mm-hmm. to be as resilient as they can be and to practice things like self-care and manage their own caseloads and lives in a way that is the best way for them. Mm-hmm. We all do that differently, but what works for you, you need to find the way that works for you and do that. Um, we can't have, it's not solely our organization's responsibility or our manager's responsibility to micromanage every part of our social work lives or our personal lives. Like you, You've got to be able to function um, in some sort of, well, high-powered job. It, it's a... We're in a very powerful position as social workers and we need to be able to live with that. And if you can't live with that pressure, then maybe social work isn't for you. I I felt like there. I felt like I was being, you were my manager and you've just said to me, I just had like like a vision there. I'm sat before you. Tell you I'm struggling, mate. If you can't cope with me, that isn't for you. Oh, you oh, let me go. You let me go, aren't bye. you? Oh, <laughs> you let me go. Have I been fired? Yeah, oh, right, of course you fired. Get, get out. Where's my union rep? Um, She's bullied me. You've bullied me. I'd say you bullied me. I think you bullied me more than I. There's evidence. There's, evidence. There's, evidence. There's video evidence Cat- now. Catalog of uh, 64 hours plus of this treatment. <laughs> So, right, but okay, so, that, so there is a line. There is, there is some personal responsibility. What more can our employers do? Where does the line come for a duty of care to our social workers if we're an organisation? So the system pressures have to sit on senior management director level. Which so, gives them stress, that's pressure for them. It does, it does. And pays, actually that needs to six go... figures. Uh, yes. <laughs> it should never... Individual social workers that are practicing on the front line should not be or feel responsible for system failures and our lack of resources. So it is not your individual fault that there's a waiting list of 100 people that need to be seen and there's only one social worker out there to do the job. That is an impossible situation to put any person in. Do we measure those metrics though? Because in terms of when you look at what senior figures in social work will see and what we can access in terms of a national level, in terms of data and research from universities, Office of National Statistics, gov.uk, and so on. You've got seen variables that we can all see. We can mm-hmm. all see how many cases a social worker's got. We can all see the vacancy rate. Again, we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, 20% vacancy rate in yep. children's social work, about 12% in adult social work. We can see the wage people are on, we can see sickness rates, we can see studies. Those those are obvious variables. Yeah. We don't see the hidden variables, which is quality of life. No. Which is a social worker stress level who's managing in the job. Yeah. We don't see those. So it's difficult, isn't it? Because as an organisation, you can say, right, well, actually, everyone's already got 20 cases. We, we're doing our bit. But then again, you've got those social workers who are struggling, but others aren't. So, I mean, there's no answer to that. There just, is, no. I'm just saying no. It's, it's difficult, you know, because you've got 
We have to accept the seen variables, but there's also hidden variables, and those differ person by person, don't they? They do. They do. And you could have a caseload of 20 or 15 or even 10, but those cases could be the most horrific circumstances and cause you so much work. One, one person on your caseload can take up a whole week. I don't like that argument. I'll tell you why. I don't like that argument. I mean, you're not saying it in this context, but I want to point this out because many times I have argued for there needs to be a statutory cap on caseloads for children's mm-hmm. social workers. And I think it should be 18. That's my view. I think 18 is about right. All the time you get some smart arse will come back. Oh, but every case... Yes, we know that's the case. But every case would be different. You could have 18 that are all stressful. Yes, we know that's the case. But... If I've got eight, I'd rather know that if all my cases are stressful, at least I've got a maximum limit of 18 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. rather than a maximum limit of 30. So I just, I don't, I, it's, people, I, no. people given that argument, and I know you're not doing it, but I, I get it all the time. It's being my bonnet that I get. People given that argument think they're so very clever making that point. Well, no S, Sherlock. Of course, that's obvious. That mm. goes without saying. The point is, though, is we need to cap. But that's a different argument entirely. Um, our employees need to do more, though. What can they do? They need to continue to fight for more resources and campaign the government for more resources that then can ease some of these system pressures. Most Give me of- something specific. That sounds like business talk. You know I hate business oh, talk. Give yeah, me something of specific. You are. Yeah, I'm too much of a politician. Of course I am. Um, You're just giving out vague words. You're not giving me any tangible things. <laughs> on, campaign the government. Campaign the government. All right, you go first then. All right, I will. So in terms of specific things that our employers could do, I think I think the government aren't going to uh, introduce caseload caps. We need to do it in terms of on an individual basis by basis. So this local authority will not allocate more than 20 cases. Just can't, you know, we'll find other ways to do it. I think that in children's social work, we have too many cases that are open far too long. We have too many children that are known as social workers far too long. And the reason we have this is we stick to these cycles of time scales, which is three months, six months, one year. So particularly if you look at children on child protection plans, well, we have a six-month review cycle. And you have so many times that those plans are kept open because one professional in the core group Maybe a teacher, maybe a doctor, maybe a nurse, could be a health visitor, could be a midwife, is saying, no, 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 I'm voting against that, I'm voting against that, I'm voting against it. And sometimes the independent reviewing officer will say, no, this case shouldn't be closed, even though they will see the family once every six months. I think the current procedural systems within child protection social work, and I'm going to get very specific here, so our listeners who aren't in children's and who aren't in, uh, aren't in the UK may be a bit lost on this one, but you may have comparable systems in your own practice. So we have a system that is very much based upon timelines. We have to stay involved for three months. We have to stay involved for six months. And we also have a a system that is based on national legislation. So in my work as the Children Act and then working together as a Children Act legislation, working together as a guidance. Those are the two sort of pillars that hold up child protection social work. Now, those things are very regimented and very prescriptive. They leave very, very little scope for innovation. And as well as that, we have a system which is very much predicated on setting a child's course through safeguarding based upon the view of the person at the front door. So when that referral first comes in, what does that initial social worker say? Is that a risk? Is it not a case? Then it goes to a duty and assessment team. They'll hold it for eight weeks. And then if it passes those two gates, so if it passes the threshold for intervention, 
by a triage worker who takes the initial referral. Then it passes that eight weeks where it's held by a duty worker or assessment worker, however you want to call that front door system. That child then enters the safeguarding system. If it's at a child protection plan, it could be for an average of a year and a half. That's a year and a half over intervention, which could be, you know, a domestic abuse incident in the family home. I'm not downplaying that, but we sometimes wait four, five, six, seven months until we're measuring the success of that outcome. We need to get in there early. We need to get in there quicker. We need to get in there faster. We need to really rip up the way the system in terms of how it's done. It's too long. It's too unwieldy. And the support comes too far down the line. In child protection social work, we are spending hundreds of millions, billions of pounds on children who are in court proceedings and subject to care proceedings and children who are in care. We don't spend anywhere near enough at the early stage. We need to be damning these problems upstream rather than wait until the downstream is too late to do anything else but throw thousands and thousands of pounds at these families on a weekly basis. We end up in bizarre situations in child protection social work. And bizarre may not be the most appropriate word, but it's the best one I can think of right now. And it's certainly no, uh, it's certainly no slur on the children and families that I'm talking about here. It's just mm-hmm. a situation that I find bizarre, not the families that have to live within this and, and the social workers and professionals that I happen to work within. We have these bizarre, tragic situations where we can be spending sometimes £10,000 a week on a child in a placement, Mm-hmm. Yet we didn't spend anything at all. We would we were struggling to even give that family £10 for gas when the mum was saying mm. I need £10 on the gas meter. So we have families that we wouldn't give anything at all to apart from maybe a food bank voucher when the children were in their care. But when children are out of their care, we will spend hundreds of pounds an hour on barristers. We will spend thousands and thousands of pounds a week on placements in private children's homes and yet for the sake of maybe a few hundred pound or a few thousand pound further upstream so it's a bizarre situation mm. and then what happens when these children turn 18 that we've cared so so much of the care system Bye. 18 <laughs> exactly so we've we've when you think about it like isn't it yeah. i can't i'm not giving exact exact examples listeners and viewers but we can be in situations i'm sure everyone who's worked in my line of work and you'll see in this too tilly would be familiar with similar situations we have situations where we're taking maybe teenage children, children maybe 10, 11, 12, 13, out of family homes because we're sitting there at such a risk. Okay, we haven't yeah. put any money into that family home to start with. We've just said, oh, well, go and do this course, go and do that course, stop doing what they're doing or else. We then take these children from families that they don't want to leave, place them in care systems, often private care homes that cost thousands and thousands of pounds a week. We then see them through till 18. At 18, we go... Oh, well, crack on now, you're an adult. Do what you like. There's adult services. And where do these children go? Back to the very same homes and very same families we've we've, we've deemed were unsafe. Mm-hmm. Now we've potentially spent hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds in that period. And what effect has came about? Now, look, we have protected the child. Don't get me wrong. We've done that. In the here and now, we've done the right thing. But that's in the here and now. By the time it gets to the decision of can you do the right thing, the years and years and years of early intervention where you could have gotten there and had intervention in schools, interventions at youth clubs. We've neglected to do that. And it kind of comes to that ethical dilemma here because we've allowed people to make your own decisions. You can live and die by your own mistakes. It's not on the state to raise your kids. 
then it does become a mistake to raise the kids. <laughs> actually, that's the problem. By yeah. us staying, it's not a mistake to raise. It's not a mistake to raise your kids and tell you how to act as parents. Well, actually, when it becomes a safeguarding issue, it does become exactly that. So. That, for me, what could we do to reduce stress in the workplace would be to simply you know, change the system. And um, yeah, that, that is a, it allows social workers to innovate, get rid of these arbitrary timescales, actually free us up to do the work that matters and make sure we do that earlier. Get that early intervention in and you will see social workers freed up to do the job that we would like to, give us more specific training, give us more specific skills, allow us to specialise in our fields, um, actually just have someone coming along and actually do something tangible and not just give generic answers like we call on the government for action. No, the action sh- the answers shouldn't come from the government. It should come from us ourselves. We need to start innovating. We need to be freed up to do that. And I think that would solve most of our problems. Yeah, but the government still write the law. Yeah, but they write the law. Yeah, they write the law. And give money to local authorities. Yes, they do, but it's based upon us to give answers. You know, if you want somebody to do something, what do you do? Do you go to do you go to them with problems or do you go to them with answers? Yeah, so they should. So if I'm coming to you, you're my manager, I'm saying, right, Tilly, this is the situation we've got. This is what I think we should do. I'm coming to you with an answer. I'm giving you the situation. Mm -hmm. I'm coming with an answer. If I come to you and say, Tilly, I've got a problem, fix it with me. Which employee are you more likely going to support and trust? The first one. Exactly, government's the same. Right, let's quickly go over some uh, some tips if you are feeling overwhelmed, people. Um, this is just basically to touch upon an article that I um, I wrote a couple of weeks back. Um, everyone listening to this and watching it will have felt overwhelmed. I certainly make Tilly feel overwhelmed on a, on a weekly Every basis. Day. On a weekly basis on this <laughs> podcast. Um, on a serious note, though, I just want to give some tips that I offered the other week in the hope this will help you. I think there are kind of a few different areas in terms of what we can do to, to help, really, in terms of managing stress. And I've broken these down into four different areas. And you can find this article over on mysocialworknews.com. The article title is How to Stop Feeling Overwhelmed in, in Social Work. So I think there's four different areas. We can prioritize and organize. We can establish boundaries. We can seek support. And we can make sure that we support our own self-care and resilience. I'm going to break those down to two different points mm-hmm. for each. So the first one, prioritize and organize. And tell just tell me what you feel about this. Prioritize and organize are broken down in two different areas. I think we can effectively time management. We can evaluate our tasks and responsibilities, identify those which are urgent and important, and prioritize them. We can use tools like what was in McKidlin's law on last week's podcast in terms of um, in terms of talking about that skill and how to use that. Um, no, this week's podcast, we did that, we did that just before. So we can utilize school tools such as planners, apps, or lists to keep track of deadlines and appointments. And doing that can reduce feelings of being overwhelmed because we're using our time best. I think with that, when we are writing things down, I think it's very important to set realistic goals. And this is realistic goals being the key there. Understand you can't do everything at once. Set achievable goals for your day. Make them smart, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time-bound. Also do those on a day, week, and monthly basis. And I think breaking down your workload into bite-sized chunks can, make, can help you make steady progress without feeling overwhelmed. How does that sound, Tilly? Would you be less stressed if you could effectively manage your time and set realistic goals? Yeah, and uh, I think it's what I've learned to do over time. Not quite as methodical as you. We work very differently on that. But yeah, I, I write a list and go through it and... To say helps, right, this it? has got to be done today. This is the number one yeah. task, Keep and I do, and and as managers doing that for your team as well, I think that's a really important thing. And say I will take the responsibility 
of the the smaller, less urgent, less important tasks, and you crack on with the stuff that we that I'm saying is the most important. And I'll take that on as my responsibility, not yours. Next thing to do is to establish boundaries. And you can do this with a work-life balance and professional boundaries. In terms of work-life balance, we've got to establish clear boundaries between personal and professional responsibilities. And I think we should be diligent about not allowing work to sleep into our personal lives. If you want to say you're going to finish at five, finish at five, unless it's an immediate safeguarding issue. And just tell your employer, well, I couldn't work past this because I had to be home. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what I would say on that one as well is don't let other people's working patterns influence your own. You sometimes get toxic team cultures where somebody works really late and works really early and that can kind of be used to set the norm. I think that's yeah. very, very difficult. Yeah. Professional boundaries are important too. Make sure you have those professional boundaries with clients, but also colleagues as well. It's very, very important to have empathy and compassion. It's also important to look after your colleagues, but you have to manage your own emotional well-being as well. Don't take on the burdens of your clients if you can avoid it. Difficult to do. We talked about PTSD earlier. It's very, very difficult. Sometimes you can't avoid doing that, but try to know what your limits are. And in particular, this is going to sound a bit cruel, listeners, but I think particularly be mindful of being exposed to too many colleagues who want to mourn and complain yes. but don't want to do anything about yes. it. Is that horrible of me to say? No, it is ah. vital. Oh, I think I've, that was one of my columns once, what to do when your colleagues moan too much. Yeah. Um, it's so important because be a, be a radiator, not a drain, yes. as I yeah, like to say. <laughs> the fourth but, aspect is do seek support when you need it, though. You can do that through two ways, supervision and mentorship and peer support. Obviously, supervision is very important, but you can also seek mentors in the workplace as well. We spoke about this a couple of weeks back about the importance mm-hmm. of mentors. You can discuss cases, share experience, and look for feedback. Peer support's good as well. Build a network of colleagues and friends who understand the challenge of social work. It's a unique challenge, social workers. Yes. And can provide that emotional support and practical advice. What I would say about peer support is be mindful that it works both ways. Mm-hmm. Don't just become the mourner. Don't just become the radiator, yes. but seek people who you can have genuine uh, like we can tell you, you know, we 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 will both uh, talk about social work. It doesn't feel like either is a draining or offloading onto the other. And I think those relationships are quite good when you have that with a colleague. Yeah. Um, the last set of skills I think are important to work on is self-care and resilience. You must incorporate self-care routines in your daily life. Now, listeners, everybody's self-care routine is different. Um, I'll be playing World of Warcraft for, for two hours to wind down this evening. Uh, But other people will have very different things entirely. But essentially, you've got physical activities, hobbies, mindfulness, meditation, eating well, rest, spending time with friends and family. As we always say, Tilly, self-care is a necessity in our line of work. And the last thing you can do is you can also develop resilience. This comes back to what we were saying about earlier, really, which is we have to accept that social work is stressful. We have to. Yeah. And there is a duty, as you rightly pointed out, on us to develop resilience. And, you know, like we were talking about, you know, you you find things easier now than you used to. Mm-hmm. I certainly do. You know, I, I remember the first time that I was involved in children being removed from their family home. I found it incredibly difficult. Whereas now, um, still difficult, still incredibly difficult, but I don't lie in bed to wake up and thinking about it like I used to. Same as anything, the more you do it, you build it. It doesn't get easier, but you get stronger. Yeah. And I think that's very important. Now, you can do lots of things there. You can practice being a more glass half full kind of person. You can look at flexibility. You can find meaning in your work. You can manage stress, like I was saying earlier, with those self-care practices. But 
you can make yourself stronger. Sometimes making yourself stronger actively involves you putting yourself in the fire. Sometimes to make mm. yourself stronger, you have to seek out challenges and not shy from them. But those are the four areas, just to go over them again, listeners. Prioritize and organize, establish boundaries, seek support, and practice self-care and resilience. How does that sound, Tilly? Are those things that you would find helpful if you applied them in your life? Or definitely. how would you have? Yeah, definitely. I think they're very four valid points um as one of my social workers in my team like to say joe shout out to joe amazing social worker we've got hands not wands it's become our little team motto hands not wands hands not wands there's only so much i can do and i'm not going to beat myself up for having taking on system pressures when actually i can't i can only do my best and my best isn't going to cut into my own life or my own time or resilience I will do my absolute best while I'm at work while I'm on the clock I'll fight for what I can but there is a limit I'm not a magician and there's only so much we can do today and there is a limit to this podcast as well listeners so until next week it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me